5: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Alexis Madrigal. Our families can be the bedrock of our lives, offering support, nurturing, and ideally unconditional love. But of course, not every biological family provides that. For reasons ranging from the inability to be a good parent or sibling to tragedy or even being rejected by the very people whose love you expect. That last thing happens all too often to LGBTQ kids cast out by homophobic families and others who end up simply building and adopting their own family-type relationships. This hour, we're delving into these chosen families and what they mean to those who have them. That's next on Forum, right after this news. From KQED in San Francisco, welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today for Alexis Madrigal. Well, I remember when I moved to San Francisco, it was 1981, and I knew exactly three people. Not one was a family member. My blood relatives were, and actually still are mostly back east where I came from. So as the months and years went by, I gradually made good friends, including many I consider to be like family to me now, people I know I can count on no matter what. Well, that process of developing a chosen family has been part of the LGBTQ community for decades, dating back to when families often rejected kids or even parents who came out as gay. Of course, that still happens, unfortunately, but chosen families are not just for LGBTQ folks who are estranged from their blood relatives. Others do it, too, for all kinds of reasons. And as we head up to this weekend's Pride celebrations, that's our topic this hour, how chosen families are created and the role they play in the lives of those who choose them. Let me tell you who's with us. Naima Raza is a documentary filmmaker and senior editor with the New York Times Opinion. She's also the author of the article, My Father's Last Gift to Me Came After His Death. Also, by the way, showrunner of the Sway podcast with Kara Swisher. Naima Raza, welcome.
6: Thank you for having us, Scott.
5: You bet. And also, Dawn with. Professor Emeritus of Communication with the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and Baruch Porras Hernandez. He's a writer, performer, organizer, host, curator, stand-up comedian, and uh, also author of a book of poetry called I Miss You, Delicate, and Lovers of the Deep Fried Circle. He's also co-organizer of KQED's Donde Esta Mi Gente literary series. Welcome to you all. Thank
4: you. Let me good morning.
5: Begin, good morning, indeed. Let me begin. Um, I want to ask each of you, and I'll start with you, Brooke. Uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about your own experience with a chosen family, Brooke.
4: Hi. Uh, yes. Well, um, when I came out, I, you know, I'm a, I'm an '80s baby, and when I came out, uh, you know, before the era of Will and Grace and Ellen, my family didn't really know how to take it, and though. Currently in my life, they're a huge support and great. Like, they're just, they're such a loving family now. But when I came out, they kind of were like, we don't know what to do with this. And you're on your own, Mm. mostly because of fear and homophobia. So, to me, the chosen family were like the fairies that lit the way in the dark woods, to be honest. A lot (laughs) of us have the experience where we were kind of launched out into this dark, see because, you know, my generation didn't have queer history. My generation didn't have uh, teachers or even society saying it was okay to be who you are. And so my queer family were the older queer men, excuse me, and, and gay men really who without being creepy and without hitting on me took a younger gay man and said, it's going to be okay. Ask me whatever you want and Mm -hmm. I'm going to be here for you. And I wouldn't be here today without them.
5: And just out of curiosity, did you leave, you know, wherever your hometown was to come to San Francisco or somewhere else? I mean, where did you meet these
0: folks?
4: Well, um, my, the one I'm closest to, uh, Robert Meyer, I call him my uncle, Bob. He was, he is uh, the father of one of my friends. And when I was in high school and helped my friends start the gay straight alliance, I didn't know that he was gay. I just would go over to my friend Max's house all the time. And one day I got there early because I was going to, I don't know, do homework with Max or something. And he was like, you look stressed. Why do you look so stressed? And I said, you wouldn't know anything about it because I was so like (laughs) depressed and stressed because starting a gay straight alliance in the 90s was really hard uh, without any support. We were facing a lot of homophobia. And he said, try me. And I said, well, I just helped start the gay straight alliance and we're getting harassed. And. He uh, grabbed the book out of his bookshelf and threw it at me. And it was a book titled, How to Start a Gay Straight Alliance in Your <laughs> High School. You and it turned out that he was gay and uh, had a library full of like gay rights books, gay history books. And it was so great for me to meet an adult who was accomplished, owned a house, uh, was a parent. I had no idea that my friend Max's mm. dad was. And it was a safe adult that I could ask questions. And uh, and who kind of guided me even throughout my twenties, we're still really good friends. I still see him as an uncle, and I wouldn't be here without him.
5: I, I call that learning your gay BCs. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Naima Raza, Raza, what about you?
6: Um. Yes. I. I so my experience is less to do with um, kind of sexuality or strained family relations, though you know I understand. In either of those circumstances, how chosen family can be primordially important. And my experience was more growing up as a third culture kid. So I, I spent my formative years abroad in Indonesia um, and in Sudan. I'm Pakistani. My dad worked in international development, and so I grew up far away from from uh, extended family and kind of squashed back with my extended family over summers and um, and holidays and graduation parties and whatnot. But I kind of had a very geographically independent life as soon as I could. When I went to university, I moved, and then after university, moved to London, lived in Asia and Africa. And so it was very far from my family um, in many cases. I mean, what you're, what you described, Scott, coming to San Francisco and, you know, knowing only three people, I've had that experience in many cities, including Los Angeles or London or New York, where I now live. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, yeah, it was really geography that, that drove me to choose my own family. And, and while I, you know, continued relationships with my nuclear family, um, I kind of felt there was a a kind of zero-sum experience between kind of extended family and the friends I had chosen through the path I had chosen in my own life. And I opted for You know, uh, friends—a collection of like-minded, kind of globe-trotting millennial (laughs) kids who like doing the same things. Yeah, you know.
5: But as you point out, geography—it's all. Sometimes it's sort of by necessity. I mean, for me, that's what it was. Mm -hmm. My family didn't reject me; they were just three thousand miles away, right? And I needed some friends, right? I mean, that's so. It can be both. It can be all those things. Exactly. Uh, Don, what about you?
6: Well. Well,
7: yeah, you know, I'm a family communication researcher, and so many of us research what we've lived. And so part of my research is on stepfamilies, and we became a stepfamily when I was 12 and my mother died. My dad remarried pretty quickly. And because that stepfamily wasn't very close, as often happens, um, I started turning to other people and other families to become family to me. And so I was really aware of how important this was. And this is so something that I also took up in my scholarship, both studying step families, but also studying what I call voluntary or chosen families in the literature. It's sometimes called fictive families. I hate that title because <laughs> it sounds like it's not real. But I've looked at you know the different types of these families and also looked at how that person in the middle sometimes has to balance the um, the the life between their biological or legal family and this chosen family.
5: And what's there's I'm sure that you can't. It's hard to say. There's a typical reaction, but you know what often happens with uh, you know the, the the blood relatives. I mean, the biological family. I mean, is there like a schism that can happen, or are you a growing it can, distance? You know.
7: Yeah, that's such a good question. It can. You know, when we studied that, we sort of thought that we would see a lot more stress. And in, there there are a few hostile cases in our our data and the people that we interviewed. But by and large, people either made this work. Sometimes they knitted the, these two families together pretty solidly. Sometimes they just kind of know about each other, but they don't really have much to do each other with each other. And sometimes that person in the middle does keep them separate. Yeah sometimes because they think that their biolegal family would be hurt. Yeah. And that's what I did. And, and they Br- knew I knew these people, but they didn't know I thought of them as family.
5: Yeah. Uh, and, and Brooke, you know, just thinking about your experience which is so common where the initial reaction of families when uh, somebody comes out is you know they don't know how to deal with it it's it, it, suddenly they thought they knew who you were and suddenly you're this different person and it takes a while for them to adjust some families of course never adjust and there's that distance that never is you know is is always there um but you know is there something else besides that that resonates in the lgbtq community for this idea of uh, of chosen families
4: well yes i mean and and um my family definitely did not get it at first. They often were very angry that I was seeking uh, family from other people, from queer people. And uh, also, I was younger, so I had to convince them that my friend was not trying to, like, you know, convert me into homosexuality. Uh, but then as, you know, things kept going, uh, they, they started to kind of, like, understand and respect it. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, my family, you know, they they're older. They both work two jobs. And my parents work two jobs and they just didn't have the time or financial means to take care of me. But after my surgery, all of my gay friends that I see as family without even me having to ask them, like made a Google calendar uh, took shifts and made sure that I was like not going to be alone while I was recuperating. And my both my parents, instead of being a little jealous, they were so grateful. And uh, now my mom makes pozole for all of them, so it's <laughs> it's it's turned out really well, even though there was a lot of tension at first. And um, but I do know a lot of uh, folks in the queer community that they're. Um, like, I, I have that weird tension where I my, my parents have to, I, like, be okay. with Like, okay, guys, I've spent two days with you. I have to go see my other – I can't call them my other family in front of them. They get really hurt. yeah But yeah. they go, okay, you're going to go hang out with your gay friends. And I'm like, yes, you can just – I mean, there's more than just gay guys. But, yeah, I'm going to go hang out with my gay friends. And now they kind of have to begrudgingly respect it, even though they, they do know it's very important.
5: And Naima, uh, you, you know, you've but, talked in your essay about how – um yeah you know, the, the the sort of obligation that comes with mm-hmm. uh, your family and and i'm wondering did you develop that same sense with your chosen family and and it, or in you know how is it different that sense of obligation
6: yeah i mean i would say that you know being required to go as to, to the dinner party of or the graduation party of a you know distant cousin you barely know um feel similar to having to go to the baby shower of an old middle school friend. Uh, so they both have a sense of obligation implied in them. I think that we feel it more with distant relatives or, or, um, or extended family in particular. And I, I certainly, and I think that might be, I mean, you know, Don's the uh, researcher here, so would know more, but I, I wonder if that's because it evokes a certain like childhood defiance of these kinds of obligations. Um, But I had, I actually thought the pandemic was really interesting because I would hear many of my friends describe how they didn't have time for stuff anymore and time was really precious.
5: Yeah. You know, we're going to take a break. And I want to to, come back to that because the pandemic has changed so many things and helped us sort of reevaluate everything from work to family to relationships. So we'll come back to that notion. We're going to continue this conversation about chosen families. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Tell us about your chosen family or the family you left behind and how they communicate with each other or know each other or not you can also communicate with us on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum scott schaefer here this hour for alexis madrigal stay with us we are family. Get up and sing.
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
5: And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Alexis Madriel. We're talking about chosen families. My guests are Naima Raza, documentary filmmaker, senior editor with the New York Times Opinion page. Also Don O. Breitwaith, professor emeritus of communication at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And Baruch Porras Hernandez, writer, performer, curator, stand-up comedian, and so much more. Also co-organizer of KQED's Donde Estamos Mi Gente literary series. And we want to hear from you. This is something that really um, works best when we hear from our audience. Uh, What are your thoughts about your chosen family? Give us a ring at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or you can reach out on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or if you like, you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Also interested in hearing if you're part of sort of blood relatives who have a A sibling, or uh, you know, a a niece or a nephew who has a chosen family. How that works for you? Give us a call. Well, before the break, uh, we were talking Naima with you about the uh, the pandemic and how that changed Mm -hmm. everything. And I know that you included that in the essay you wrote recently. um, To say a little bit more about how that really shook things up. I mean, in so many many ways. But uh, you know, in terms of our families.
6: Yes. Um. So. I was this concept of kind of reclaiming time from things that we didn't want to do with people we didn't want to see was a theme that I observed a lot of in the pandemic and I related to because, frankly, I lived much of my life um, because of that geographic independence I spoke about. Kind of doing that, choosing what I wanted to do and opting out of a lot of obligations as soon as I was liberated to do so. So not attending the graduation party, skipping the Thanksgiving dinner, you know, and and choosing instead kind of one-on-one time with my parents, especially as my father was getting older. I felt there was a need to kind of maximize time with him, which meant <clears throat> and cutting off, you know, a lot of extended obligations that I didn't want to do anymore.
5: Yeah. Uh, Dom, what did you what have you found in the research in terms of the pandemic and, you know, people reevaluating all their relationships, whether it's with work, family, friends and so on?
7: Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, so many people just physically had to create pods. And I think that sometimes for some people, these pods became um, family, you know, not more more than friends. Uh, I'm also really interested in couples who got together around the start of the pandemic, and then they had to really figure out, were they going to, you know, spend the pandemic Pandemic with somebody, or were they going to break up, or just not get this going? And 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 I just have some anecdotal evidence that I think there were a lot of couples for whom the pandemic sped up uh, relationships. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think for chosen family, the pandemic was, um, for the reasons Daima said too. You know, people just took life more seriously and started thinking about. Who do I really want to spend time with? Who do I want to allow into my life? Yeah.
5: Well, let's uh, bring the audience into our conversation. Again, it's 866 6786 Tell us about your chosen family. And we're going to begin with uh, Allie in Belmont. Welcome.
2: Hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Sure. I had two comments. One was about how I think chosen family can be... Um, grouped sometimes in certain different stages of your life. I know that I had people I considered chosen family in my 20s and as we grew and evolved and had you know our families of our own those kind of changed and other people who I consider chosen family have come into my life so it's interesting to see how that can evolve over time with different sets of people.
5: Yeah. And then
2: the other is the other which is kind of a hairball is (laughs) I'm a donor conceived child Uh and over the last like six seven years I've learned of over a dozen siblings and uh, half siblings and some of those folks have really engaged in getting to learn about one another and meet up and our families are really close while others have made that decision to stay away because it's just if that's what works best for them so it's a very strange combination of genetic family that we didn't know about who are now choosing to be part of this Collective of half siblings, which has been just totally fascinating. That is so inter-
5: that is so interesting, and like uh, so for you, you were drawn to get to know those uh, you know genetic siblings.
2: Oh yeah, they're amazing, and the similarities are just completely bananas. So yeah, we have a wonderful time, and I completely consider them family, not just for the genetic piece, but because there's so much we have in common. So it's yeah. been really wild.
5: Interesting, Brooke. Do you have uh, do you know people in that kind of a situation with those kinds of relationships? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I I mean, I think so. I remember, I mean, I, 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 I'm very close friends with a lesbian couple and their kids were donor kids. Uh, and the uh, dad is not, you know, in the picture. And so I'm kind of the uncle slash, you know, father figure, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, and the two siblings had very different reactions to what you're describing, Allie. One did want to know. Uh, who the siblings were. You know, there was a Facebook page, I think, where people could reach out. The other one had no interest whatsoever. And, you know, they're both obviously perfectly valid choices, right?
4: I definitely have a friend who went and found uh, their biological mother and had such an incredible experience finding their biological mother that they changed their name back to what their name was going to be had they stayed with their biological mother, and it caused a lot of drama in my queer chosen family, Uh, just because of the, the, the way it seemed like they were maybe like rejecting their adoptive family, but it's all good now at all at all. Like everybody's has a good relationship now, but yeah, it was a little drama at the beginning.
5: Yeah. Well, and, and, and of course, uh, you know, I, I can imagine Dawn that this is obviously not just for donor kids, but for any kid who's adopted and the, the parents are still around or one of the parents is, and you know, you have, you know, in some ways you have two families and that's great, but there could also be, you know, some, some tension or, uh, you know, uh, you know, just kind of resentment.
7: Yeah, and, I, and I'm also an adopted kid, although I never bothered, I never chose to find my family. But yeah, we call this person in the middle of the linchpin. You know, and this is this person that could truly get caught in the middle between either their you know biological legal families, chosen families, you know, maybe a biological mother or father's family. And it can be a really tough role to be in sometimes it takes, I think, some skill and some deafness sometimes to be able to just do that dance, right, and keep everybody happy happy, and, and and have relationships with people that are going to be meaningful to you um, and help you in life, but at the same time realizing that all of those people may not know about each other or agree to be in the same room, etc.
5: All right, let's bring in some more listeners. Again, it's 866-733-6786. If you want to share your personal thoughts or just uh, you know from friends and family and Uh, others that you know who have these sort of chosen families. Uh, Who is in your chosen family? How did you find them, and what do they mean to you? Let's go now to San Francisco, and Moss, you're next. Welcome.
8: Hey, thank you. Go right ahead. Um, Yeah, so um, I came out as queer a couple of years ago, um, but I have had kind of a queer chosen family for quite a while, um, and... Yeah, I'm currently in this sort of process of having a conversation with my biological sister about um, kind of why I haven't been in more contact with my biological family, and um, trying to find a way to explain <laughs> what family means to me, even though. It's, um, what, yeah. Do you mind saying what you to tell? To be her? honest about.
5: Yeah. What do you tell her? What? What do you tell her when, she, if you don't mind sharing, it's obviously very personal. But like, how do you explain that to her?
8: Um. Yeah. I. It's the conversation is just sort of just begun but um part of what i'm thinking to say is that i um, just kind of naming that we have really different relationships with family like she has um she's married and has kids and is in contact with everybody in the sort of biological sphere and i don't have a good relationship with my parents and mm-hmm. um yeah yeah that i'm sort of um taking a break and yeah trying to reassess
5: yeah. And, and, and Brooke, uh, you know, that idea of sort of taking a break and, you know, sometimes it does take the biological family, you know, time to kind of catch up with where you are or where you're going. Yeah. Right. Oh, definitely.
4: I tell a lot of folks that I'm close with my parents now because of my queer chosen family. And I say queer chosen family, cause that's, that is a, a term that I feel that I first heard it in the queer community. And it wasn't until decades later that I heard it in the mainstream. But uh, I'm close with my parents because my Uncle Bob was like, do not give up on your parents. A lot of queers, mm. when they come out, are told these things like, oh, your parents didn't accept you? Never talk to them again. Mm. But uh, and I feel like that's kind of a new-ish thing. And and when I talk to my young queer babies or my queer younger siblings, I tell them what my Uncle Bob told me. You know, your parents have been brainwashed by homophobia. Don't give up on them, you know, and and because I listened to my uncle Bob, I didn't give up on my parents. And I kept going back, mm. you know, every two months I would say, hi, still alive, still love you. <laughs> they would ask, still gay? Yeah. And they'd be like, get out. But because I kept coming back, yeah, yeah. they saw that I wasn't going to change. They saw that I mm. was doing unconditional love because my uncle Bob, mm. someone who I'm not blood related to, an older gay man. Was giving me unconditional love. And he was like, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, and and he was like, you know, I'm older. I didn't get to have a relationship. I'm from a generation of gay men that lost a lot of time with our parents Mm because we didn't have the language. So he was like, I really want you to try to be part of that generation that doesn't lose that. And so I just kept going back. And then one day my parents finally were like, okay, fine. (laughs) <laughs> we love you, and we're okay with you being gay. And now I have such a beautiful relationship with them because my chosen family pushed me to not give up
5: on them. Yeah. Moss, does that resonate with you?
8: Um, not in the same way, but I'm thinking about how, in sort of taking a break from my parents, that I'm finding that I do have some family members that I do get more unconditional love with from my biological family. So I'm sort of taking a a bigger break and then sort of slowly starting to integrate more yeah. people as I find that I can trust
5: them. Yeah. Well, good luck with it. And, you know, hope it all works out for you. And thanks so much for sharing uh, your story with us this morning. Um, and, you know, Naima Rasa that, you know, I do know of people who have, um, you know, basically written off their, their families, you know, and, mm-hmm. and their parents in particular, because they're so hostile. Oftentimes it's because of cultural or religious uh, background. Um, and, and there's a pain there. I I feel as much as you know. People can say I've just washed my hands and my family. Whatever there is, there is a there's a hole. Kind of a hole in your heart there, isn't there? Oftentimes.
6: Yes, um, I certainly experienced that when you know, as I was describing, I I kind of ignored my extended family and my father and mothers. Efforts to get me to engage with extended family more. You know, I'm like, I'm seeing you. I don't know why it's so important that I see my second cousin twice removed, just because I'm at grad school in Palo Alto and, and they happen to be nearby. You know, I didn't see the value of that. Um, my father was sick over the course of a decade. And um as in the last year of his life, so this is early in 2021, and as he was really um not well, and in hospice, and he wasn't able to eat anymore. He really had kind of given up his his will to live, I think. But when his brother was about to show up, you know, he would eat he would eat something that day the the day before because he wanted to make it to see his brother. A few days later, you know, we told him a cousin's coming, and he scarfed down this omelet because he knew that my cousin was coming to pay her respects and. I saw in those that moment kind of how my father had lived and he had lived a very geographically dispersed life, but he had always tended to these famil- familial obligations and he lived for sustaining them. I mean, even in his final days, he lived for sustaining them. And in the aftermath of my father's death, you know, a lot of people showed up for me, including my chosen family, including chosen family from various cities in which I've lived. But the ones in which I found most comfort were family, inherited family, mm. who I had been a relative stranger to for at least a decade you know of my adult life because they knew my dad and there was a comfort hmm. in that shared experience that shared um blood that kind of profoundly changed my sense of kind of nature versus nurture hmm. or chosen versus obligated um and it's something that i'm you know, trying to get back into more now, those obligations, those duties in the spirit of my father.
5: Yeah, so interesting. We got some listener comments here. Bradley writes, when I was a teenager and was outed in the early aughts, my family did not embrace it. While they've come around to being, quote, accepting of my husband and me, the underlying feeling of disapproval remains. I've learned the importance of developing a chosen family, people who not only accept you, but embrace me 100 percent without any reservations. To my fellow queers, there is love in this world. Surround yourself with it. And then Mike writes, the East Bay Center for the Blind is a chosen family. It's a small organization struggling to survive, but we're made up of close friends, acquaintances, blind and sighted people working hard to come out of COVID together. We help each other laugh and live a positive story of ability as we share the everyday challenges of disabilities, uniting influence. Another another kind of chosen family. Let's go back to the phones. And again, the number is 866 733 6786. And our next stop is Santa Cruz, the Santa Cruz Mountains, to be precise. TJ, welcome.
3: Good morning. So my, my wife and I have created what we call an intentional family. My wife and I are a heterosexual couple, and we have a heterosexual friend, a woman who has lived with us for 12 years now. Um, my my own family is essentially non-existent. Um, I have no uh, close relationship with my siblings, and I have no—I'm not an uncle. I, I don't even really understand some of the family language—nieces, nephews, uncles. My mom is gone, and my 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 wife is an only child— and so, um, you know, we realized as we aged and as we watched our own parents age that we were going to be alone. It was just going to be us without children. And so our intentional family gives us great joy. Um, if, if marriage is about partly about, you know, division of labor, having another person around um, divides the labor even more. We support each other and love each other, and best of all, it's good for the environment because we all share the same space and the same resources. So it's been a, a great a great experience.
5: Yeah, interesting. Don, have you come across that uh, idea of an intentional family? That uh, do you see yeah. that as different?
3: Uh, yes,
7: Scott, absolutely. I mean, there are. I think it's wonderful. You know, this is what the 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 strength of. they really the words are kind of all interchangeable to me. But whether intentional or voluntary are chosen, you know, these families really bring a lot to life and, and they bring a lot of support to life, both physical support and emotional support and, and help what we call instrumental support in tough times as, um, as I think Baruch was describing and so it it's just so important i think to for people to open themselves to these relationships and it just it, you know if you only limit yourself to blood and law, you are leaving out a lot of people who could just be a wonderful part of your life and yeah. I think that's what the caller's describing
5: yeah and, and Naima, um, you know Tj talked about not having kids and that can also be. Uh, you know, an impetus, I think, for finding uh, either because your kids are you don't have children or they're far away and you can't really count on them or you're estranged from them, whatever the situation might be. And so you surround yourself in part. It is that intention, uh, not for having people as caregivers necessarily, but just to have people, you know, a support system that you're going to need in particular as you get older.
6: Yes. And company. I mean, I think that that is very true. I live in New York City and, you know, I grew up watching Friends, right? Which is this, obviously the sitcom in which all these people, I mean, Monica and Ross are related, but the rest of them <laughs> are friends and they're, you know, they're closer to each other than, you know, than than many of us would be to our own siblings. And I think New York has that. I, I think about that a lot as a woman in my thirties who I don't have kids yet. I, you know, aspire to one day, but I, you know, I think about the family I have around me and it's something as simple as who do you put down as your emergency contact on a doctor's office Mm, form, right? right, And, and who, you know, uh, Brooke was describing, you know, his illness and the people who showed up in the place that he lived in and who had the time and the resources to show up. And I think it's very important Uh, as a, as a, as a professional woman, I also think about like, what is the viability seeing my friends struggle with balancing careers and children, et cetera. Like, what's the viability of a nuclear family these days and kind of containing it all? Don't you need that extended family that's being described by this caller?
5: Yeah. I mean, I think there's never never a downside to having more people in your life who care about you. And, you know, you also mentioned, Naima, the idea of there's a lot of this in New York City. And there is, I think, sort of an urban, rural divide to this kind of thing. You know, people who live in cities Mm -hmm. often move away from their families. And cities are also, you know, just so big and you meet so many people often, especially when when you're younger, uh, that uh, you do it is easy to kind of fill that void uh, with people you meet along the way. All right, we're going to continue this conversation about chosen families, and we would love to hear from you to join our conversation. Give us a ring, 866 733 6786, or reach out on Twitter, Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or if you like, email us. It's forum at KQED.org. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Alexis Madrigal. Much more to come. Stay with us. But family is And we continue our conversation now about Chosen Families. We're talking with Baruch Porras Hernandez, writer, performer, organizer, author of a collection of poems called I Miss You, Delicate and Lovers of the Deep Fried Circle. He's also co-organizer of KQED's Donde está Mi Gente literary series. Also, Don O. Braithwaite. 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 Pardon. Braithwaite. Braithwaite. I'm sorry, Don. I'm really. <laughs> I actually had a friend with that it, name. Really. Don O. Braithwaite. Braithwaite, there we go, Professor Emeritus of Communication with the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, and Naima Rasa, Documentary Filmmaker and Senior Editor with the New York Times Opinion Page, also author of the article, My Father's Last Gift to Me Came After His Death. Again, the number to call if you want to join us, it's 866-733-6786, and let's go to Tim in San Francisco. Welcome.
9: Hi, good morning. Um, I wanted to make a comment about uh, chosen family as opposed to biological family. Uh, I'm a queer man. I'm 51 years old. And um, when I was growing up, I was physically and mentally abused by my biological family. So for me, they gave gave up any right of being uh, considered my family. Um, Now, my chosen family, uh, those are the people who are my brother's. They're the people who I care about the most in the world. And, um, you know, as far as uh, I'm, I'm becoming older and I recently made up my will and only my bio, only my um, chosen family is included in my last wishes. My biological family is not. And they didn't earn the right to be called family um, after what they have done to me. And um, so I, I just wanted to say um, i uh, i love you paul i love you scott and i love you justin you mean the most in the world to me oh i'm sorry i love you too barry <laughs> i can't leave <laughs> out barry oh my god anyways uh those four men are the greatest people i've ever had in my life and um i i, I couldn't thank them enough for, for what they have done for me so yeah. um Wow. So those—that's my family, and those are the people that I only focus on now. Yeah. So that's my comment.
5: Tim, thanks so much for sharing that. And uh, you know, Dawn, one—one of, one of you. It was either you or I think Naima who mentioned that. You know, that moment where you're filling out the emergency contact. Uh, but uh, as mm-hmm. as Tim said, also your your will. I mean, that's it. That's your last statement uh, about who's most important to you.
7: Yeah, I mean, we've seen that on our research that, you know, you have to make those decisions in life about who it is that will be family to you. And many people, people that are completely estranged from their families are probably more rare than we think, but people have to make that choice and find that support in life. So I'm all for people finding and discovering those people that are going to make life worth living. And I think that's what the caller is describing and making very intentional choices about, about his life and who, who's going to be family.
5: Yeah, you know, Baruch. I, as I was listening to Don and thinking, it uh, sounds like you were in. Came out in the '90s. I came here in 1981, just as the AIDS epidemic was happening. And you know, so many of these chosen families, there were so many deaths. You know, it was just like a war almost. And it just devastated, Uh, I mean, there are generations of of mostly men, but, you know, some women as well who died of HIV AIDS. And, you know, a lot of people were left with having to create yet another sort of group of chosen families uh, after, after, and during, of course, the the epidemic's not over. But I'm wondering, does that resonate with you at all, Brooke?
4: Definitely. Those are my mentors, those queer folks that, had to come together, not just because they were in the darkness that is living in a country that is homophobic with laws against you, on top of that, to have a plague killing all of your friends uh, and to have to recover from that, survive that, uh, live with that guilt, seeing those mentors of mine, the older generation of gay and queer women, um, still create love and joy and community and family after that has been, monumental for people of my generation to see that like chosen family like queer family can survive anything really and it's something that isn't just from our era read any you know like historical stuff historical stories queer histories Uh, i mean the the chosen family thing has been helping gay and lesbian and trans and queer people survive for I think hundreds of years, you know, because I mean, before the Internet, <clears throat> excuse me, before uh, technology, I mean, queers helping each other through the darkness was like how we I believe how we've survived. This yeah, whole
5: time. yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's go now to Concord and Allison, you're next. Welcome.
10: Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I am part of a, an extended um biological family here in the Bay area. And as of two years ago, both of our, our parents, um, were gone and, and they were sort of the glue that held us together in terms of family get togethers and so forth. And since that time, my brother and sister-in-law who are also in the Bay area, um, have spent a lot of time with their chosen family. And they talk about their chosen family on Facebook and spend holidays with them. Um, and don't spend time with me and the rest of the biological family. And, um, you know, communication is not our strong suit in my family. And um, I guess I just wanted to say that as important as I think chosen families truly are, because um, I, I do have my own chosen family of girlfriends, um, I still want to keep a very strong connection to my biological family. And it's been painful. Um, to be, to feel rejected huh. by a member of my biological family, and and for reasons that I don't really understand. And so, I think when it comes to chosen families and biological families, if there are still some ties with the biological family, I I I think there's some sensitivity that is called for, mm-hmm. and some understanding of of how choices can affect other people who love you very much.
5: Yeah. Allison. thank you for sharing that. Uh, Dawn, that's, uh, certainly is the case. You know, it's a, uh, it's a two-way street. It's not just people doing the choosing, choosing. It's the ones who are being left behind.
7: Absolutely. And, you know, I think in the, what we've seen in our research in the best of all possible worlds, people have different needs at different times of their lives and sometimes at the same time. And so you can have both sets of relationships if that fits your, your needs. Um, and that's okay. But I can understand and hear in the caller that hurt when the feel, feeling like the biological family has been thrown off or rejected um, for the chosen family. And, and social media actually makes that more possible to know that's happening. You know, right. years ago, we wouldn't have really known that was happening. Yeah,
5: yeah, exactly. Well, Allison, again, thanks for sharing that and uh, best, best of luck to you and your family. Uh, Jessica writes, I think chosen family is an essential part of the immigrant experience. My parents moved from Korea to Los Angeles back in the 80s. My parents created a network of chosen family who were all recent Korean immigrants of a similar age. I grew up with these aunties and uncles, their kids, being cousins, even while having a blood family. In Korea, who I visited every few years, I see this continue as a teacher in East Oakland, working with mostly immigrant students and families, where I see lots of close relationships because families are from the same province or areas uh, from their home countries and speak the same home languages. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, And then also Sile writes, many years ago, I was heartbroken when my daughter left for New York Three of my young friends, women in their 20s, stepped in and said they would be my bonus daughters. What a gift and the joy those relationships have been. Uh, these many, many years. Um, and Naima, the, the the idea of this being sort of, you know, you talked about your own uh, immigrant family and mm-hmm. um, being uh, Pakistani-American. Uh, and you can obviously see that as being, either, I've met many immigrants who come to this country or to California by themselves, you know, and mm-hmm. um, obviously they would, it's not, not surprising they would gravitate toward folks from that own their same country or whatever. But that is an added level of uh, sort of a challenge.
6: It certainly is. And I was very surprised to response to my essay, particularly amongst the immigrant community who who said this is how their family has been too a deep connection, you know, a, a fostering of chosen families and people who are connected, but also a reconnection with very distant relatives. Because maybe you arrive to, you know, California or New York and you know, your third cousin, you know, someone from a previous generation was there and they would take you in with that proximity Um, as Sile was writing in kind of a bonus daughter or bonus parent. And I've definitely seen that in my parents' generation. Growing up, I felt the um, kind of less connected to the immigrant um, community of my own age group because going back and forth to Pakistan, I would see kind of my cousins or friends there modernizing at a pace that wasn't happening in immigrant communities here because there was a sense of history and heritage that wasn't kind of updating with the times, um, which was just a curious experience of my own. Like, I, I think I think it's very profound for the first generation, but it can be different for the kind of the the next generation. Yeah. I'm curious what others think.
5: Yeah. Uh, any thoughts about that, Baruch?
4: Oh, I definitely, same boat. When we first came to this country from Mexico in 1989, we didn't know anyone. This is way before the age of the internet. And the immigrant families, not just from Mexico, we became immigrant family or chosen family with, you know, Latinx family from Peru, from Guatemala, from Puerto Rico. Um, you know, there was no one around. So I spent so many Thanksgivings, Christmases with these other You know, immigrant families that weren't blood, uh, but they kind of became family throughout the years because my parents, through their uh, friendships, uh, created this wonderful relationship. And we're still kind of close to these folks. You know, a lot of them have moved away. Their kids have grown up. They they have very different lives from mine. But if something happens, my mom calls me and says, "Okay, we got to do something to help this person Who you grew up with who was like a sister to you and i show up you know uh chosen family uh is an action word for me is what a lot of my older queer uh brothers have told me it's showing up Mm -hmm. is being there not just because you're related by blood but because you want to and because you should you know and uh, i'm really grateful that i had these extended they were like cousins to me you know kids that i grew up with I'm, i'm grateful that my mother had these other immigrant women to rely on that are like sisters to her you know she still goes to get brunch with them once in a while and and it was a very immigrant thing to like choose your 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 family uh recently i had my american grandmother pass away it was very hard for us but it was also weird to explain to folks because you know even my coworkers were like oh your grandma i heard your grandmother died Hmm. well actually she's not my grandmother she's my american grandmother and they were like what does that mean well (laughs) my mexican grandparents i loved them dearly they passed away like 10 years ago this was the woman who kind of Stepped in as grandmother, a white woman hmm. who my mother worked for, but she kind of fell in love with us. So we fell in love with her and we had this very grandmother grandchild relationship with her. Yeah, um, it does kind of open up those conversations.
5: Yeah. You know, she was, yeah, the, you know uh, she
4: was there. She took us to baseball games, cards, every birthday. Like she yeah. just was an incredible person, and it was so hard when
5: she died. Yeah. All right, let's try to bring some more listeners in. Let me read a comment here. Uh, I love my chosen family. One listener writes, for years it was just my daughter and I. Then five years ago, I took in a homeless youth. This young man has become a beautiful addition to our family and has become like my son, We've had a lot of issues to work through from mental health and wellness to helping him make peace with his sexuality. My son knows that no matter what, I will always be there for him. He's been such a wonderful addition to our family and to see how resilient the human spirit can be when shown unconditional love is a truly powerful thing. Don Braithwaite, I'm sure you uh, you would agree with that. It's, uh, it, it, and especially for people who've never had that, to suddenly have it you know, in their teen years or whatever, however old they might be.
7: Oh, absolutely! I mean, again, what a what a wonderful gift of humanity and relationships that's just so important to us. So, especially, I think one of the challenges I often, you know, get called to talk about this chosen family around the holidays, to remind people that, you know, reaching out to other people and including them in your family, if if that works for you, can be just such an amazing thing for that person, but also such an incredible addition for your family. And I think you see that in the words of this caller.
5: Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go back to the phones now. Our next stop is Mountain View. Elizabeth, welcome.
11: Yes, thank you. Glad to be with you.
5: Good to have you. Go right ahead.
11: Um, Our family was put together through open adoption. When my daughter realized that she was not going to be able to raise her child when she was three years old, that then we thought, what is a good alternative? And I could have raised her, but I was recently divorced, trying to find work and various other things, and that didn't seem like a good idea. We also couldn't see giving her up for adoption and that she would no longer be in our lives because she'd been in our lives for over three years It was just delightful. Hmm. And then I learned about open adoptions, and there was a couple called John and Connie Dennett who had also thought about adopting a child. And we were brought together through a mutual friend. And we have been friends and wonderful family together for the last 30 years. In fact, Connie, my granddaughter Carrie's mom, is visiting with me right now together <laughs> with Carrie's two oldest children. Oh, nice. So maybe Connie can say something about their end of the situation.
5: Oh, well, you're going to yes, hand the phone um, to Connie. <laughs> there she is.
11: Yeah, I'm now. Uh, this is Connie. Hi, and, Connie. Um, We've been so blessed by this arrangement because Elizabeth actually lived closer to us than um, my husband's and my um, parents. They were uh, distant and good grandparents, but but Elizabeth was nearby. And so she has been our family grandmother, and uh, my parents and my husband's parents have all passed on now. And so we have had just this wonderful blessing of Elizabeth in our life. And um, we also adopted, uh, through foster care, hmm. a son at 10 years old, and Elizabeth became his grandmother as well. Oh, I wonder, and what so a gift.
5: A, what a gift for both of you, right? For yeah. all of you.
11: Oh, all the way around. It is. Yeah. Uh, we have the four younger children, and the two oldest ones are visiting here, too. We, uh, we live in, in St. Louis now.
5: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, but, good.
11: Um, we get together regularly, Christmas mm-hmm. and Holidays and times like that, wow. yeah. Yeah. and, well, and I are such good friends. We we even travel together. Yeah, and um,
5: well, that's amazing. I mean, to have uh, you know, to have that kind of uh, support network, uh, and to do it you know in a way that just you know reaches out. It's a gift. For all of you, I, I really appreciate uh, your sharing that with with all of us, Elizabeth and Connie. Uh, best best wishes to both of you. Um, here are some comments from listeners. Elaine writes, "I discovered recently through DNA that the person who I thought to be my father was not. This was quite a surprising discovery. At age eighty five, I've been in touch with family members and we're tentatively beginning to get to know one another. This affects the family I grew up with, my children as well as me." Any insights on this situation from your panel? Um, let me put that to you, um, Naima. I guess.
6: Um, yes, I. I mean, I'm not familiar with this situation myself, but I have had friends who, by virtue of 23 or Me or other, you know, 23 and Me or other sites, have found um, discovered family the way Allie, I think, their first caller had mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's. I mean, it seems, I, I feel Dawn might be a better place to answer this because <laughs> it feels like a tremendous um, ground shift, yeah, right? Yeah, in, in what you conceive of your family.
7: Well, it's really interesting because we do use the word family to describe so many different things, don't we? Um, And so, you know, we can discover biological connections with people. And from that perspective, it makes us family, but they may not feel like family. And there may be other people in our lives that feel more like family or who we discover in life. So I I think it's, you know, it must be a a real shock to find out that biologically the family you thought was family family are not. Um, but on the other hand, there really is an opportunity there to perhaps get to know them um, if if you think that they would be helpful in your life. And if not, it may be finding more chosen kin yeah. and voluntary family yeah. that are going yeah. to meet your needs better. And that's okay too. Yeah.
5: All right. Well, I'm afraid to say we are out of time, but what a, what a terrific conversation this hour. Thanks to all of you, Naima Rasa, Dawn O. Braithwaite, Baruch Porras Hernandez, thank you all so much. And uh, thanks also to all of our listeners for sharing all of your stories with us. Uh, Really, really very much appreciate it. All right, that's going to do it for this hour. Scott Schaefer in today for Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Thanks for listening.